Hey IntelliGamers, today is Thursday, August 24th. I'm Josh Boykin, founder of IntelliGame.us, and you're listening to another edition of IntelliGame Radio. Hey folks, I hope Thursday is treating you well. It's a pretty busy Thursday over here at the IntelliGame office, aka my basement. <laughs> First off, I'm getting prepped for PAX West, aka PAX Prime, for the Penny Arcade Expo hosted in Seattle, Washington. I'll be attending there for the full four days. I'll actually be there a little early on Thursday. Um, I lined up an appointment to talk with the lead writer of Life is Strange Before the Storm, the new three-episode miniseries that's coming out based on the Life is Strange universe. So it's going to be a pretty packed weekend next week, but if there are questions that you have about the show floor, if there are particular games you want me to try and check out or things of that nature, feel free to use that button here on Anchor. You know which one, the call-in button, and leave me a message. Or you can always leave a comment on one of the comment or uh, on one of the segments using the comment button. It's going to be a really interesting show. I went to PAX West last year, and it was really exciting. It was super packed, uh, very crowded, and I don't spend a whole lot of time in Seattle, but it'll be fun to get a chance to meet some interesting people and hear about new games that are coming out as well as just being around the general energy of that many people enthused about games and being in a physical community space. So I'm looking forward to seeing how that all turns out, and I'll definitely be taking multiple anchor segments from the show floor so you'll be able to follow along with me as we explore. I hope you get excited about that, and again, that'll be starting next Thursday, so keep an eye out here on the station. Crunch is a topic of discussion that comes up in game development circles fairly regularly. For folks who are unfamiliar, crunch is essentially the all-hands-on-deck portion of game development. Usually near the end of a project, work weeks transform from 40 hours to 80. There are often stories of people being at the office for 10 to 12 hours at a time, not sleeping, not eating very well, not seeing families. Particularly in the AAA space, this can be exceptionally lengthy and detrimental to not only physical, but also mental health. Crunch is a complicated discussion because some people describe it as sort of a crucible, a trial by fire where you separate the wheat from the chaff, not only in terms of the people who are experiencing the crunch, but also the ideas that have been made in the game. There are developers who have said that without a crunch process, who knows what their game would have been, it could have been much worse. On the flip side, again, mental and physical health take a, t are, uh, take a toll over the course of a crunch process. And there has been much discussion about whether it's necessary to go into these crunch phases. In particular, the idea that if there were proper management, management of expectations, and proper planning and respect of the time and health 
of employees that perhaps crunch is would not be necessary and could be entirely avoided. All of this discussion came back up to the surface after Polygon published a segment, a piece from Walt Williams's new book, Significant Zero. It's coming out later in September, but this particular excerpt of the book was published under the title, Why I Worship Crunch, an industry veteran tackles a controversial subject. Now, since then, the internet has kind of, or at least a small part of the game internet, has kind of blown up, usually with a lot of backlash about this article. With a title like Why I Worship Crunch, you can imagine that there are some predicted interpretations of what happens in the article. Now, it's a complex article. A, he describes Crunch as a demon lord, a sort of dark god that seems to uh, reign over the, his experience in game development. Every time he references Crunch, he writes it with a capital C, as if it were a proper noun, if it were something that had a, a sort of domination for him. Now, the article hits, it describes Crunch as this sort of awe-inspiring process, but in these ways that are inherently toxic. It's like, it's like a drug. A drug that he, he says specifically that it is like a drug and makes some pretty stark comparisons. So I want to have a couple of discussions. One is about the article itself, as well as my own experience with Crunch. And two is about our interpretations of articles and our penchant for bandwagoning and what we can do to try and solve some of these things moving forward. Let's start with a small reading from Williams's excerpt so that we have some concrete context. Yes, crunch is that fun. And yes, I'm going to capitalize crunch as if it were a proper noun because crunch is not some idle concept or a construct of the human mind. Crunch is a demon lord hiding behind the no charge Coke machine, laughing as you guzzle down those free sodas, knowing that each delicious slurp sells off tiny pieces of your soul, and that soon, so very soon, that bill's gonna come due and Crunch will step out of the light and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth as the hope vanishes from your overly caffeinated eyes because you know this is all your fault. It was you who allowed this foul demon into your midst and now your ass belongs to him. When I think about Crunch, my heart races. It only takes an instant for my eyes to drift off into that thousand-yard stare, and then it all comes rushing back. My head goes all swimmy, like I haven't slept in 48 hours. My tongue dries up, aching for the disgustingly sweet taste of Red Bull. My mouth wants to rage and howl and spit until designers and directors alike bow to my creative will. All hail Crunch. So, listen, reading this excerpt, it is, it's the, it's the description of a toxic, powerful force. Something that encompasses this, your soul and motivation. And yet, there's nothing in that reading that makes me feel like that's a positive experience. Nothing about that 
makes me want to go through this situation. If you haven't played Spec Ops The Line, to give you a little bit of context, then that was the first project that Walt Williams worked on that I became familiar with. I actually interviewed him before the game's full release. It may have been right after the game's full release. It was, I think, my first E3. And Spec Ops The Line places you in the command of a three-person fire team in the Middle East. A battalion of US soldiers has gone missing. There's a giant dust storm and your job is to go in and find out what happened to these missing soldiers. The game is a heartbreaker. It essentially takes many of the third-person shooter tropes that we deal with in video games and then makes you feel the consequences of those decisions. The idea by the end is that you may not feel like a great person because of the actions that you took. This isn't Call of Duty where racking up a hundred or thousand person body count makes you a hero. Instead, you're meant to feel the, the visceral experiences of taking those lives and evaluating what kind of person you are after that experience. This is the zone, this is the realm in which I understand Walt Williams' work. Inside that power fantasy is a pretty stark critique of the situation that's being explained. So when I read this article, I can't help but see parallels. Crunch isn't a pandemic or a death march, it's not even exclusive to the games industry. If anything, Crunch is a natural occurrence brought on by the creative process. Driven by passion, artists give themselves entirely to their art. When art exists in a collaborative medium, Crunch will always deal collateral damage. How much damage you personally sustain will always be inversely related to your investment in the project. And that was a quote. These are the ways in which this is portrayed. Now, I'll link to the article on the segment description, but I have to say that his descriptions of Crunch mirror my experiences with them. I used to work for a healthcare IT company where we would do software development and then install that software for large hospitals. And if we were coming up on a deadline and the job wasn't getting done, it wasn't, it was on us as the vendor to make sure the job got done. I had tons of friends who would spend really late evenings and really early mornings in their offices, pounding away at their computers, eating leftover food from the cafeteria at night. And it was not quite a badge of honor. You couldn't describe it that way. But there were folks who had jars of peanut butter that they kept on their desk and you knew they were going to be there without going to lunch even. I always looked at that jar of peanut butter as both a sign of a problem and also a badge of honor. That somebody was so willing to make sure that they got the job done, that they did what they needed to for the customer to be successful, that they would forego even going to lunch, right? Like, like it, we and there were good lunches there, but no, it's fine. I'm just going to go ahead and eat peanut butter here at my desk. Maybe that's the case for dinner too. You see the pressure that comes from these 
high octane development cycles, when you have a deadline that's looming and you know that, that, that it has to get done, the stakes feel very high. And there's a sort of, I guess, martyrdom that can come through this, a, a reinforcement that makes you feel like the sacrifices you're making are for the greater good. And that culture can be perpetuated by companies that say, oh, well, just have, have free coffee and free juice, and we'll give you a fancy cafeteria and a great campus, and you don't have to feel like you have to go home, and maybe we'll hire you fresh out of college, and this might be your first job, and you don't know any other work cultures. Maybe you're defining yourself a little bit by your performance here. The stories that I feel like I read, the descriptions in this article about crunch, feel like my experiences too. And if I'm totally honest, there, there was an addiction to it. There's this part of me that felt exceptionally validated whenever I could say, oh, I've got to work late and pull out my laptop. If I am 100% honest, it's how I feel sometimes now with IntelliGame. I'm the only person running the show. And so I, I'm trying to remember the last time I feel like I had a quote unquote day off, but I'm constantly thinking about ways to grow the site or ways to put together new articles or any number of things. There is, it is a dark force, but it is, it is subtle and it is addictive. And when you see the fruits of your labor, it feels like an amazing rush because you know you did it. And the flip side of it is that it is hard to see the costs of a crunch cycle until that crunch has gone by. I think that describing crunch as this pure negative force, somehow it just doesn't explain some of the reasons why logical, sane, sensible people go through this process repeatedly. But also to describe it as a pure positive process would be completely inaccurate for most all the folks that I know who have experienced anything even close to a crunch cycle. And I think it's that ambiguity between light and darkness that makes for some of the confusion in the reception of the article. So I'll admit, this is the part where I get a little bit confounded because I read this article and I don't really feel like this is glamorizing the crunch experience. To, again, to describe it as a fully negative experience with no possible positive anything makes a whole lot of really talented, really qualified, economically rational people who make decisions for reasons that make sense seem inherently irrational. It makes all of this seem, well, why do we do it? We could just not do it. And as somebody who has been through that experience and understands the feelings of those compulsions and also the power that comes from feeling like you're making these sacrifices for your work, to, to describe crunch without that is, is to create a false perception of the experience of crunch. Does that mean that crunch is necessary? Perhaps not. 
But I feel like we have to have a realistic understanding of why people crunch. He describes crunch as an addiction. And in the same way, this reflects on why do people do drugs? Why, are pe why do people have addictions to substances? It's because there's a part of them that is validated or receives something positive from that experience even if the side effects, the long-term consequences, the short-term consequences are damaging. It's, it is not positive. <laughs> and yet, I look at the ways that the reactions have come, both in the comments and on Twitter, and people seem to be looking at this as if it's some sort of glorification. And this is hard for me to understand, perhaps because I've been through this situation. But uh, there was a developer from Clay who started a Twitter thread that said, uh, this article is BS, why is Polygon endorsing this shit, glamorizing crunch while at the same time admitting it's an addiction? We wouldn't do this for drugs or alcohol. Crunch isn't due to creative art, it's due to capitalism. This is exploitative to workers. His melodramatic, I worked while my baby was born, while my dad died stuff, shows he's not a real person. That's disgusting. He says this article isn't an endorsement, but Polygon is endorsing it by publishing it with this title. And of course, we can continue uh, down the line. There's another person that says, I've edited scripts in ICU rooms. Uh, this is a really shitty person, full stop. Um, luckily, afterwards, they follow up and say, I may have responded rashly before, f uh, before fully finishing the article. Even if this is some measure of satire, though, it's still espousing horror. I don't actually think that this is satire. And we could have an entire discussion about Tina Fey and sheet caking and satire, but actually Malcolm Gladwell already did it in episode 10 of season one of Revisionist History, which you should check out. But I don't think that this is satire. I think that this is supposed to be an honest portrayal of the feeling of going through crunch, being somebody who has actually experienced this and is conveying why it happens. So to see this really strong backlash that's not only judging uh, Polygon for uh, showing this perspective, but also Williams and calling him soulless or a shitty person, um, there are any number of ways that people have sacrificed family, friends, self-care for the sake of their jobs. and. Though we have a specific term for it, and we call it crunch here in game development, it's not exclusive to games. I think that these kinds of realistic portrayals and discussions have to show up so that we can better understand the appeal of the circumstance and what we need to actively do to avoid crunch. Avoiding crunch, I mean, I can only even talk about it in theory, but it needs planning. It could be expensive. It could be you know, any number of ways that you're like, well, actually, we have to adjust these timelines. Actually, we need to make sure that you actually leave at 40 hours this week because your productivity drops significantly after you've been sitting here for eight hours at this desk. It takes a lot of hands-on attention, and I think it would be worth it but I don't think that it's worth it to just demonize the entire experience. All right, folks, 
I think that about does it for our discussion of crunch right now. I would encourage you to look up the article yourself. It's on Polygon, and I would love to know your thoughts. Have you experienced crunch yourself, or is this something that you feel is a a poor portrayal of an experience? Do you feel like this is glamorizing the experience of crunch? If you have been in a game development scenario, what are ways that you've experienced crunch, or what are some ways that you feel that people can work to avoid this situation? Or do you feel like crunch is necessary, that it's an evil that manifests more good than it does harm? Whatever your thoughts are, I'd like to hear them. Uh, you can use the call-in button right here on Anchor, or if you're listening to this on your favorite podcasting app, you can send a tweet over at Let's Intelligame. Or you can also leave a comment on Facebook at facebook.com slash Let's Intelligame. We're going to walk into our midday break, which means we're going to not be posting segments for a little bit, but um, I think our question of the day is pretty well stated. What are your opinions on crunch? Have you experienced crunch? Any of those kinds of things. Of course, if there's anything else that you'd like to talk about too, feel free to leave that as a call in. I'm happy to, uh, happy to go ahead and highlight those as well. We'll talk to you after the midday break. Hey everyone, just wanted to give you a quick reminder that we are now live at twitch.tv slash Let's Intelligame. One more time, that's twitch.tv slash Let's Intelligame. Today we're streaming two games, first of which is The Political Machine 2016. We have a candidate who currently embroiled in a vicious battle against Condoleezza Rice. We'll see how that goes. Secondly, we'll be streaming Orwell, which is a narrative adventure that deals with government surveillance. I'm excited about both of them. I hope you'll join. See you online. It's from 5 p.m. to 9 p.m. Pacific time. That's like starting in just under five minutes. Well, folks, it's late, but usually is by the time I'm done wrapping up work on Thursday nights. I hope you were able to swing in for at least a little bit of the live stream. It was a lot of fun. We had, looks like, a, a few new viewers and we always manage to have good conversation. We started with the political machine. We ran the second half of our campaign running Intella Game against Condoleezza Rice. Sure enough, Candidate Game was elected president of the United States. It was a landslide victory secured by both the Electoral College and the popular vote. It was interesting how when it came down to the wire in a couple battleground states, started lighting up texas in particular my strategy shifted there were things that i didn't really consider about using the money in the war chest or trying to make sure it was running ads things of that nature given there was so much effort that condoleezza invested in texas a state that was hard for me to be able to tilt anyway because i wasn't really good in a number of the key Texas issues. My candidate wasn't strong in them. There were any number of other places that I could go to and start tilting some electoral votes. Thinking about the strategy of moving around in different states and saying, well, I'm not going to spend time here because I'm not going it, to. It felt 
somewhat disingenuous, the idea that you wouldn't go to a place simply because a vote is a vote, but instead you go to other states because you know that an entire state... For, I suppose I should give some international context to those who haven't already learned the history lesson that came from the 2016 election. Our states have a certain number of electoral college votes. And so when a candidate gets the majority in a state, they get that entire state's electoral college votes. Which means that if you've got a large urban city uh, in a state that is not, or that the, the majority of that state is going to another location or this is all really confounding it's late the point of this story is that because of the electoral college there are some weird shifts in how you approach getting votes because you're not just trying to get one vote from every person you're trying to get a majority in the state so that you take all of that state's electoral votes Mechanics in the system of the political machine are odd reflections of our actual political process. And the process of trying to come up how, with how to play that board game kind of showcases some of the ways that our actual American political system feels very broken. But it does make for a fun board game. So hopefully uh, if we end up running through it again, you'll be able to check it out a little bit. The difficult part of today's stream was Orwell. Orwell is a government surveillance simulator, essentially. A narrative adventure where you play a character who has been hired to work with the Orwell surveillance system. You're working in the nation, a country which has been taken control of by the party. Of course, all of this is just as ominous as it sounds. There's a new essentially safety protocol, a bill that has been introduced to prioritize the safety of the nation above all else. With that safety measure comes a number of sweeping regulations, including more military presence outside of the nation and increased surveillance inside the nation. In the first episode, we are uh, subject, we see a bombing of a national monument where a couple of people are killed and we find a suspect, Cassie Watergate. And we go through her personal communications to put the pieces together to find out about what we are identifying as some sort of organization called Thought. Thought seems to be behind number of these attacks. It's a conflicted feeling going through the game. Instinctively, I, I want to root for these folks for fighting against a totalitarian system. On the flip side, obviously playing the role of this character who has been hired in to work for Orwell there are certain things that we have to do to be able to continue progress of the game and to suppose to keep the country safe. And this is the part where it becomes really complex because on one hand, there's this massive invasion of privacy that's taking place, going through emails, bank records, phone calls, all these different things. On the flip side of it, 
you have the ability to prevent an explosion in a really crowded space. Theoretically saving lives. And though it's rumored that Ben Franklin said those who would sacrifice freedom for safety deserve neither, or something akin to that, it feels a lot more complex. Though there are three episodes left in Orwell, I have to say that I have to kind of brace myself to handle the rest of the emotional content that this game seems to load up. And there's a lot to think about in terms of the way that we actually look at, the way that we live our lives in this technological world. Even just me, I think about how I have a Facebook profile and a Twitter feed, and I'm here on Anchor, and I'm on Twitch, and I have Patreon, and I talk on Discord, and there are just so many different places where there's this digital paper trail. All of those different resources have different facets of my persona and ways that I've interacted with people. Maybe there is one big nanny monitor tying all of these different profiles together to make some sort of statement about who I am, what kind of risk I pose. And it's kind of terrifying. I don't think I've got any sort of conclusion. Because on one hand, <clears throat> privacy is exceptionally important. And the idea that we would have government running around just taking in everybody's information, well, yes, that, that can potentially become a huge issue. But looking at the way that the game has portrayed this, even though we are part of what seems to be a very negative nanny state, we also saved lives tonight. And I think that that is the paradox that we'll continue to deal with as technology evolves and we have to figure out what to do to maintain individual freedom and individual privacy in the midst of a world that seems to be on the brink of disaster. Well, it's getting pretty late, so why don't we go ahead and wrap up with some call-ins. First off, we're going to take one from Michael Conway. Hey, you know, I want to talk about this because this is one thing that I have a great deal of interest in. And it really comes down to the fact that, uh, you know, bigoted speech is not the same, and even hateful speech are not the same as calling out fire in a, in a theater or... or, or you know, trying to solicit children towards illicit drugs. Okay? Not things that put people personally in harm. Words. Once you restrict one person's right to speak, you will eventually lose your right to speak. It's the Illuminarch. Peace out. Peace. Thanks for calling in, Michael. And the free speech debate. Yes, it continues to rage on. Though there may be a difference between bigoted or hate speech and shouting fire in a crowded theater, I think it's pretty well predicated based on that discussion that there are types of speech that can endanger the lives of others. For example, shouting fire in a crowded theater, which can cause a stampede and whatnot, 
or even in the sense of being at a school-sponsored event and trying to uh, talk children into using illegal drugs. We've already instituted the idea that there are some forms of speech that though they are just words, incite actions that are inherently problematic and not things that we allow in society. Now, does this mean that I think anybody who says, well, I don't like black people, well, should that be considered a crime? I, no, I, I mean, I think it's dumb. It's a really shitty way to live life and it's offensive to me personally. But is that something that somebody gets locked up for? Or is that something that we have restrictions on? I, I suppose you know, that falls <clears throat> under free speech. But I think that what we're talking about here is rhetoric that specifically is creating a mentality or an idea that people should be taking what in cases can be lethal action. This is not a question of spreading attitudes about whether or not somebody likes people from the LGBT community or not, or whether or not they want to go to the same picnics. This is about creating rhetoric and organizations and groups that have gotten to the point that they are essentially declaring genocidal tendencies. When we talk about Nazis, when we say that people are Nazis, and, and not in the hyperbolic, oh, they were a, you know, a feminazi or whatever people tend to put the Nazi suffix on. When we're talking about actual white supremacists, when we're talking about people who are legitimate Nazis and espousing the beliefs of Aryan superiority, this is something altogether different. And to lump those discussions into the free speech bubble, to me, speaks of essentially allowing people to exploit the system. To take a space where we have talked about allowing free speech as a way to allow the spread of ideas and to allow us to be able to make statements about our government and we're utilizing, we see people utilizing that loophole to spread ideology that ends up consuming the group from within. It seems to me that this is akin to a virus or a sickness. We're saying, oh, well, well, those germs are germs just like all the other germs. And, and those germs need to be able to do what they do. At some point in time, we determine that there are plants that are weeds. At some point in time, we determine that there are behaviors that are inappropriate. And when we find out that those, are, those behaviors are inappropriate, if we don't do something about it, those behaviors continue. Perhaps they multiply to the point where white supremacists and Nazis hold giant rallies in the street and don't even wear masks or hide who they are and say things like Jews will not replace us and one of them gets in a car and drives through a crowd of counter protesters and kills one of them. Hey, this all sounds hyperbolic but it's it's where we are and I think that if we don't figure out what to do next if we work under the basis of oh well if we stop them from speaking then nobody will speak that slippery slope, I, I, I 
don't think that that logic is sound. Yes, we'll encounter situations where policies will need to be revisited. Yes, we've already encountered situations in which government has tried to quell the speech of people who were simply trying to get their voices out or to say things that were not endangering the lives of others. But that's not what's happening here. Our second call-in is actually also from Michael. This is going to be a discussion about crunch. So, hey, Josh, this is Michael Conway, the Illuminarch. And, you know, when people talk about the crunch, and even if he didn't say anything positive about it, I think maybe it's they're too coddled to, to understand that, like, when I was working as a, a stockbroker, it meant being in the office at 3 a.m., to deal with whatever the chaos was that was happening overseas before the markets opened here in the U.S. and having all my clients and all their orders started up so I knew what my day was going to look like. And no, when the market on the East Coast closed at 5, the West Coast didn't close for another three hours. So I was working from 3 in the morning to 8 in the evening, most days. So this is just, you know, something that, people don't understand peace thanks for that call in michael and i'm gonna be the first to admit somebody tries to give me a job where i need to be up at three o'clock in the morning dealing with anything i'm gonna complain about it i'm i'm gonna be real upset and i'm not even gonna feel guilty about that not one bit uh i think that when we're talking about the idea of like being a stock trader and having to work a job where you're interacting with people who are physically existing in other places on the planet and that they are awake at different times and you have to work with that system i think that there's an expectation in those jobs that like yes there's going to be some stress here there are some pain points that are associated with that job as a necessity of interacting in that system but I think that when we're talking about crunch and particularly in the software development cycle, because the, the idea is that the stress that people are going through is not a required part of the job. This is where the discussion comes to, comes to light. It's not the idea that people are against working hard. I, I can tell you every game developer that I know works tons of hours and goes through any number of both mind-numbing, arduous, and also really high-complexity tasks to make work that they're proud of. And I don't think that even in situations where people have been put into crunch scenarios, it's not a question of not wanting to work hard, but it's a question of do we need to put people under this style of stress to be able to make a successful product? Yes, deadlines show up in any project and inevitably there's more work to do than there is time to do the work. And it seems to be the nature in every project I've been involved in. But do we have to create this culture where we end up with this giant glut of tasks that have to be completed via 80 hour work weeks over the course of uh, a month or three months or six months 
That, I think, is the question of crunch. And I think it is a valuable question. In my experience as a project manager, a lot of this has to do with scope creep, with controlling the amount of project that you're taking on, the timelines that you're taking it on with, making sure that you have the appropriate number of people to be able to handle the situation and that those people are communicating efficiently and effectively so that if there is going to be a problem, we know ahead of time and can figure out, well, do we need to cut something out of the project? Do we need to bring in the right number of people? And some of it also has to do with company culture. I know that when I was working at the software company, like it was fun to hang out with other coworkers. And sometimes we would get dinner and then hang out and get our laptops and work together. And it was just part of the culture that we would spend this time together working until seven to eight, nine o'clock at night. And yes, that's quote unquote fun, but it also has a draining effect. And so this is where I think the discussion of crunch comes in. I don't think that this is a situation of people not wanting to work hard. I think they're working plenty hard. The question is just, can we work harder, smarter? And I imagine that stockbrokers find a way to do that too. I mean, I still really do not envy those hours though. Not one bit, not at all. Anyway, uh, thanks for those call-ins. I appreciate them. Uh, yeah, and if folks have call-ins, of course, you know what to do. Hit that call-in button here on Anchor. Last call-in of the night comes from the Game Time Guru. What's going on, man? My name is Shane Larson. Um, I'm the host of the Game Time Guru, which is a podcast. It's not only here on Anchor, but is also available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, TuneIn, and, and other platforms like that. I do a weekly podcast every Friday, and I do my daily quick takes here on Anchor. But the point of this is I wanted to call in and see if I could get some support from the, the gaming community. Uh, I did a podcast yesterday. Uh, well, that launched yesterday with a guest of mine um, about esports and the ever-evolving, ever-growing world of esports, and and we dive into, we talk about scholarships at, at universities, we talk about the Olympics, we talk about the benefits of of gaming and how it can actually help you as an individual, and we kind of relate it to traditional sports as well. So um, I'll send you the link here, and I, if you could please possibly, you know, share this with your friends. I'm just trying to get some support from the Anchor community, um, and I think you guys might be interested in it because it's not about traditional sports it's about esports and it's actually really interesting cool i hope people enjoy the episode the link is right there in the segment description if you have a podcast or a blog or something that you think intelligame readers or listeners would be interested in go ahead and give a call here on anchor fm you can use that call in button and let us know that you've got some content up if it looks like it'll be a good fit you just might hear it on the air for Intelligame Radio. All right, folks, I think that does it for us for the night. I'm your host, Josh Boykin, and as always, you can find me on Twitter at Wallstormer. You can find Intelligame on Facebook and Twitter at Facebook or Twitter.com slash Let's Intelligame. And don't forget that our efforts here are supported by listeners just like you. And if you want to be part of keeping the Intelligame train moving, you can go to Patreon.com slash Let's Intelligame. There are some pretty awesome ways that you can help contribute to what we do here. 
and uh, also get some neat perks for yourself as well. Some really awesome news that I wanted to announce before we get out for the night. Um, we streamed Tacoma, the narrative space-based simulator uh, narrative adventure, a couple weeks ago. And it was a great game, had a lot of fun with it. I am really pleased to announce that we're actually going to be playing through Tacoma again, but this time we're going to do it with Fulbright co-founder and designer slash writer for Tacoma, Steve Gaynor is going to be on the Let's IntelliPlay live stream. It's in two weeks, two Thursdays from now. I think that's September 7th, but it'll be from 5 p.m. to 9 p.m. Pacific time. If you're in the chat, you'll be able to ask questions and learn some more of the sort of inside story of how Tacoma was designed. Um, I'm super excited about it. Steve is a really great guy, and uh, I think we're going to have a lot of fun. So I would recommend that you go ahead and mark that on your calendars because going through Tacoma again is going to be a blast, but it'll be even better with Steve in tow. So thanks a lot, everybody, for your attention and for hanging out tonight. Uh, this has been another edition of Intelligame Radio, and until tomorrow, keep Intelligaming.